being able to say no to your mentor, I think, is another one of the, the things of, of getting comfortable with it. So I, I often quote Gandhi when I do this part about saying no, which is a, a no uttered with deepest conviction is far more valuable than a yes merely to please. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. This is Kim Skorupski, and I'm so happy that my buddy, Dr. David Usum from here at Hopkins is joining us on the podcast today. Dr. Usum is our Associate Dean for Professional Development. He's also the Vice Chairman of Program Development in the Department of Neuroradiology. He used to be the Section Director. And if you happen to be a neuroradiologist, yes, this is the guy who literally wrote the textbook. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing well, Kim. Good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much for being on with us. And you are so beloved and so full of information, and everybody loves your seminars. And so I was so excited to get you on the podcast today. So what are you going to talk about first with us? Well, I thought I'd like to talk to you about what makes a good mentee-mentorship relationship, but take it from the perspective of the mentee rather than what is typically provided, which is uh, the mentor's perspective. Uh-huh. All righty. Tell us about that. What, um, from a mentee's perspective, I'm a junior faculty member, um, and I hear about mentorship all the time. Uh, what should I be thinking about or doing? Well, I think that you have to select good mentors. And um, when considering a good mentor, I usually say that you have to look for three A's in your best mentor. And the three A's are is the mentor available? So the first A is available. When I hear about mentees that are not happy with their mentorship experience, most often the complaint is that my mentor doesn't have enough time for me. So having a mentor that you know is available and has the time and prioritizes mentorship is probably the first A. The second A, I would say, is finding someone who is altruistic. And that means that you have a mentor that is going to put your interest, the interest of the mentee, at a priority, uh, that this person cares enough about other people that he may or she may even um, put uh, their career uh, to a lesser emphasis in mm-hmm. order to assist a mentee. So that's altruism. Right. The third A that I talk about is someone who is a good advocate. And this is, um, I consider advocacy sort of like sponsorship, and that is that you want a mentor who is well-seated in professional society or in research uh, groups or at the NIH so that they can propose you for positions that may be useful to you or for papers that need to be written or for grants, etc. So a good advocate. So those are the three A's that I think are, make up a really good mentor. And as you're looking at for one, you should be considering those. Uh, the other A's that people sometimes mention are uh, approachable, and that's true. You want someone who's going to be fun to be around and, and, you know, welcomes the mentee to the room. And the other one would be, you know, someone who's affable, you know, to have a good time. I mean, mentor-mentee relationships can be a really positive experience, and you want to have it be something that you look forward to. I love it. So available, altruistic, an advocate for you, approachable and affable. Now you started saying, you know, 
this these are some tips when a junior faculty member is seeking or asking or trying to find a good mentor. What about those situations where someone is assigned to us as a mentor? So I, I know there are junior faculty members out there who are at their institutions and they're thinking, well, that's all fine and good if I have the luxury of finding my own mentor. What do you say to someone who, first of all, is assigned a mentor or or maybe does not understand or help them understand the idea of team mentoring? How how can they um, navigate that or feeling like they don't have a choice in this matter? Yeah, so I agree with you. It's really a team uh, effort. And by that, we mean that you should build a committee of mentors. So in, in when I work with Jennifer Haythorn-Flate, who is one of our experts in mentorship from the, looking at it from the mentor side, we talk about different types of mentor. We talk about process mentorship and content mentorship as a large sort of category of mentorship. The process mentor is someone who knows the system, knows how to get around different um, problems in the institution, knows what it takes to get um, to get promoted, is well situated for making contacts. A content mentor, on the other hand, is someone who really understands your science. So. Uh, Kim, you, uh, you in your field may not understand neuroradiology, but I can send a neuroradiology trainee or, or junior faculty member to you because you know how to navigate through Hopkins' system. That's a process mentor. They may use me for content about whether this is a good project to pursue. Similarly, we talk about peer mentorship, and that is, I, I like to think of that as having someone who's maybe a year or two ahead of you in the system who has already navigated some of the uh, obstacles for uh, being successful in academia. And so having someone who's maybe uh, you know still an assistant professor, if you're an associate professor, someone who's just a couple years ahead of you who might be a good peer mentor. That's and right. we also talk about mentors that are successful in navigating the balance between community life, home life, work life, physical fitness life, so, uh, and that person does not need to know necessarily your content nor how to navigate through your institution, but knows how to balance the different aspects of one's life. So those, you know, even if you're assigned to a, a mentor, I, I think that, number one, you can have multiple process mentors and multiple content mentors, but you should have a, a committee of several people who are giving you their perspective. Perfect. I love it. And I know later on in a different snippet, you're going to talk about having difficult conversations and, you know, some communication tips. So even if you're out there and you're thinking, man, I've got a really difficult, um, you know, touchy relationship with a mentor to whom I was assigned, you have to tune in and, and learn about some conflict and um, some snippets from Dave later on. But that's great. So, how do you, um, what do you recommend with your mentees and mentors about having some kind of an agreement between how the relationship will work? What are your thoughts on a contract or something like that? Yes, yeah, so I know that different institutions have proposed having mentee mentorship contracts. Um, you know, personally, if a mentee was asking me for a contract, I guess I would feel a little bit like that it's not a that there's a trust issue if we have to resort to a contract uh -huh. so i'm not a personally a big fan of contracts on the other hand i do think that you need stated goals and objectives 
that could be instead converted from something in a contract that we both design to something more like an individual development plan. So I, I, I know, Kim, in your JFLP um, program, uh, you emphasize having and creating an individual development plan. That might serve as the kind of um, roadmap yeah. for the mentor um, uh relationship. But, um, you know, specifying, well, we're going to meet this many hours uh, a month, et, et cetera, to me, it's a little bit too form- formal, and I'm not a big fan of it. However, whatever works, right? Right. I mean, in the end, this is mostly for the mentee's benefit, and if that is what is required, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll support it. But I think there's other ways of doing the same and getting the same sort of uh, relationship developed without having to resort to a contract that both people yeah. sign. I I agree with you, Dave. I. I like the idea of some kind of a structure or an agreement, and I liken it to two different kind of analogies. If you're a cook or you're a baker, you'll follow the recipe. You may follow the recipe for a number of times when you prepare a dish. Then after a while, you get so good, you don't need the recipe anymore. Or when you go to the gym and you're learning a new workout routine or a new gym with equipment and a trainer's taking you around, you may have a note or back in the day clipboards with your files telling you what machine to do what exercises, how many of them, how many sets, how many reps. And then after you've been to the gym a few times, you don't have to pull the clipboard out or pull your notes out. So to me, it's the same thing like in the beginning when you're getting to know each other and building a relationship and understanding each other and learning each other's how they like to take in information and how they like to um, plan things. You're get you're kind of just navigating the relationship. Then you can kind of put the, the formal thing aside because you you know you know what to do while you're always keeping mindful of the fact that, listen, there's a goal here. You know, we are we're we're baking this to have some product, a loaf of bread or a cake, and we're at the gym because we want to get fit. So it's also the same thing. We're in this relationship because we're trying to get the grant funded, the project done, the cure discovered, you know, so. Got it. Yeah, I agree. All right. So you are so famous for, everybody loves your mentee rules. In the play on words, you always say mentees rules. Uh, that's, you know, such a highlight. And every time you hop, you offer that seminar at Hopkins, you've got like a hundred people in it. So why don't you tell all the folks who are listening around the world about a little bit about your mentees rules and mentee rules? Sure. Well, the, the play on word is related to the fact that I think that the mentee is the one who should be ruling the relationship. So you rule, you know, that sort of thing, uh, because the mentee has to take the bull by the horn and really sculpt the relationship. At the same time, the play on words is there there are some rules of the road for having a good mentor-mentee relationship. So I use that as sort of a a play on words. Um, when When I do the seminar, I usually will survey the attendees to determine what their issues are that they are experiencing in their mentorship uh, relationship. And, you know, hopefully a lot of them are having wonderful relationships. But as I said, it gives me a better sense of what is happening out there and what the failures are. And as I said, the number one is always uh, my mentor is not, you know, doesn't have enough time for me. That's that availability issue. And Unfortunately, number two, even in, even in a place like Hopkins, sometimes it's I don't have a mentor, yeah. which is which is an even worse issue. Um, but then there are the issues of you know my mentor doesn't understand my needs, or 
doesn't advocate for me. And that's why I say, um, you know, having an altruistic or an advocate as a, as a mentor is so important. But the, um, the, the rules that I go through are, are basically, you know, Dave's top 10. And um, they include, uh, number one, be proactive. That is, you have to go and select that and find that mentor. So get out there, build your uh, committee, which is actually rule number two. So as you said, it's not sufficient to just have one mentor. Most of us who are successful have many different people that we consult for different aspects in our life and career. So number one is being proactive and and not waiting for the mentor to come to you, but going out and, uh, you know, interviewing, if you will, for mentors. Number two is to build the committee that we talked about before, content, you know, process, peer mentorship, work-life balance mentorship. Um, what other types of mentors would you would you describe, Kim? Yeah, I guess that's it. I mean, yeah, you, you could talk about mentorship around getting promoted or just like how to write a yep. grant or learning how to write better. You could, you know, identify some perhaps some skill that you want to develop and, and get a, you know, a coach mentor around that particular skill or task, I guess. Yeah, right. So number three, um, the third rule is to know your mission and you know, I'm sort of known for pushing that junior faculty pretty early on should sort of develop what their purpose is, what they see their role is in the in the university or in the private practice or in commercial area, whatever it is. What, know the mission because that gives a better sense of grounding when you have that relationship with your with your mentor. Number four is to set goals and timelines, and you know, we usually talk about SMART goals that could be put into the individual development plan that you use as sort of, the, as you mentioned it, a recipe or, or a menu for uh, going forward with your mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, set the schedule. So um, this is my solution to the, the mentees that complain that they don't have enough time with their men- mentor, and that is to get on a regular schedule with that mentor. So set a recurring uh, time and date and a frequency with mm-hmm. your mentor that both people can agree to. Uh, we we talk sometimes about, you know, some people need more time than others, but at the very least, you should be having at least one meeting a month with your mentor for an hour. We would like to see more, but get on the you know, so you know it's the third Wednesday of the month at right. 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. You know, set set the schedule and make sure that even if uh, you can't make it, that you reschedule to keep that same frequency. Number um, six on the list is to create an agenda and, and send it in advance. I, I think this is an important part that the mentee should do because, number one, it allows the mentor to see what is going to be the topics for the next day, again, sending it in advance, and prepare. So if the topic is review of my grant and I, as the mentor, haven't looked over your grant yet, <laughs> well, there's my cue, right? right? Or if the top, you know, if the topic is talk about, you know, um, potential placement on an editorial board, well, then I have to, you know, have time to think about. It. But just as importantly, it tells the mentor that you're thinking about their time and using the time well with a, you know, an agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, number seven is um, reflective listening. And, and that is this sort of this Rogerian reflective listening to make sure that the mentor understands that, hears that you are 
hearing exactly what they're saying. So after the mentor tells you, well, I think you need three more papers, you give that reflective listening piece of, oh, so you're saying that three more papers and I should be able to be promoted. Did I get that right? And get that affirmation because sometimes even with the best of intentions, people don't understand exactly what they're saying to each other. And I know uh, even with my wife of uh, several years, um, sometimes you need that even with someone that you're communicating very well with. Uh, Number eight is summarize. And by that, I don't mean in the reflective listening. I mean, after the meeting, I like receiving bullet points from my mentees of what the action items are for me. So we summarize and say, um, you know, you're going. The, the summary might be, uh, we met yesterday, and um, some of the highlights are: a, you agreed to contact Dr. Jones about, you know, possible placement on a study board; uh, b, you're going to return the paper from uh, for revision by next, you know, Thursday. So just little reminders for the mentors because you know. Some of the mentors have many, many mentees. So having a little summarization um, of what, you know, what transpired and what the agreements were, I think is important. Number nine is always is to express appreciation. Most mentors, although they enjoy doing it, it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure for them. It's also a pleasure to hear that what they stated or their time was um, recognized as valuable to, to the mentee. And finally, um, something that I think, Kim, you probably have a, a separate seminar on or, or snippet on is, is how to say no. And um, saying no is important because sometimes uh, the thing that is being requested of you it does not comport with either your values or religious tenets or your focus or your mission. And so being able to say no to your mentor, I think, is another one of the, the things of, of getting comfortable with it. So I I often quote Gandhi when I do this part about saying no, which is a a no uttered with deepest conviction is far more valuable than a yes merely to please. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. how to say no and and doing it in a way that shows your integrity rather than, you know, just being difficult, I think is an important important rule that mentees have to learn. You're right. You mentioned the JFLP, which stands for the Junior Faculty Leadership Program. And we also talk about, you know, when you say no to something, you're saying no to one thing. But when you say yes to that one thing, you're potentially saying no to many other things. Because now you've taken on something else, and that's shifting priorities and now the things that you were that were mission centric to you are are being realigned and maybe you know inappropriately so so it's so important that we have to practice that saying no and being comfortable say, being it polite maybe you know no not now because yeah you say no to this it's you're saying no to one thing now maybe not you know forever but just now but if you say yes you may end up saying inadvertently saying no to a lot of other things that are more important. Exactly. So these are great, uh, 10 great tips, and um, I've written them down. Be proactive, build a committee, know your mission, set goals and timelines, set a schedule, 
create an agenda and send that in advance, practice reflective listening, summarize like the day after or after the meeting and send it bullet points to the mentor, express appreciation and say no and learn how to say no. Awesome. Those are the, those are my, my 10 mentee rules. <laughs> 10 mentees, rules, mentee rules, Dave use them. Oh, yeah, those are classic. Now, you and I both know, and a lot of people out there know, that there comes a time when this is just not um, – we can't, we can't go further in this mentee-mentor relationship. And I know in all your decades of being Hopkins and the hundreds and hundreds of mentees you've had, how do you know when it's over? And – how does a how does a junior faculty member get out of it? How does a mentee you know break up with that mentor? Yeah, unfortunately that that happens. Um, you know, I've been blessed with uh, you know my main mentor is uh, Bob Grossman, who is the dean of the medical school at uh, NYU, and actually the medical school was just recently named after him, and he's been my mentor, you know, for over thirty years. Mm. Um, I still can go to him with, with issues and he's a re- very responsive guy and, and obviously very successful. So ideally what happens is that it's not the, the mentor mentee relationship ends on a sour note. It's that, you know, you, you move ahead and you're more involved in your own mentees and need less mentorship as you go along in your career. However, there are times when you know, it doesn't work out. And um, being able to preserve the relationship while you know, the, the interpersonal relationship while ending the mentor-mentee relationship is, is a skill. And, and part of it is expressing appreciation for the person's time and what how far they've gotten you and, and praising, you know, that those aspects of the relationship that did work. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, sort of summarizing the goals and objectives that were accomplished. But um, you, sometimes you do you do need to move from one person to the next as your career advances, um, ideally. Um, now, what I would say is that um, you want to have continuity from one person to another. So as you're... Fortunately, if you have a, a committee of mentors, you're not going to be abandoned by all of the members of, of that committee. And you know, even as I left uh, the University of Pennsylvania, where I was with Bob Grossman, um, to Hopkins, I still was able to call upon him for advice for things that were happening at Hopkins. It's, in fact, it's sometimes it's it's nice to have someone outside of that institution. Right. So um, what I would say is that you, when the mentor-mentee relationship is just bad. Um, we talk about the different types. So we talk about tormentors. We talk about someone who is, you know, just, you know, being very hard on you and make, not making you feel good about yourself. That would be, we call that a tormentor. We have, we have the dementor, which is the person who's driving you crazy and getting you into all kinds of problems, which also the link there is the fomentor, right? Who foment, foments, uh, bad relationships. Um, we have the fermenter who becomes basically a drinking buddy, but really is not helping you with anything uh, of value. Right. Uh, the anther who only talks about your failures and never celebrates with you. But what I feel is the most um, egregious, if you will, is the cementer. That is the person who 
does not help you advance and in fact works against you to the point where your career is not going anywhere because they're either taking credit for your work or you know is are threatened by you and are putting you down mm. so that's fortunately that doesn't happen very often but if you're in any of those situations um then it's appropriate to end the relationship by again emphasizing the positive being grateful and then um moving on by going back to being proactive and searching out another content mentor or another process mentor yeah. so those things uh happen I love the play on words, and I've always gotten a huge kick, and everybody loves the play on words. Tormentor, de-mentor, faux-mentor, fur-mentor, la-mentor, and c-mentor. And we might as well go with the positives, because I love how you've also identified augmentor, the good ones, yes. the implementor, the documentor, and recently I, I made sure we started implementing retirement or in our academy for retiring faculty, I call them retirement mentors. But um, it's always fun, and folks out there, you don't, or if you do know, he this uh, Dave Usum is a words with friends. Um, I don't know how many, what level you are, but I know it's pretty crazy. <laughs> well, this is great. Thanks, Dave. Um, I hope you've enjoyed learning some tips on finding a mentor from Dr. Dave Usum, Hopkins Associate Dean for Professional Development, the Vice Chairman of Program Development, and Neuroradiologist. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Kim. Good to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.